Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden welcomes the Prime Minister of Denmark to the White House today. She and Biden are expected to discuss Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the two countries' decision to train Ukrainian pilots on F-16 fighter jets. Danish Prime Minister Mette Frederiksen is rumored to be a candidate to become the next Secretary General of NATO. Eight Republican states have now pulled out of a bipartisan voting partnership known as ERIC, or the Electronic Registration Information Center. This helps many local election officials keep their lists up to date. But NPR's Miles Parks reports an NPR investigation finds far-right activists have effectively targeted the organization. Everything started in January 2022, when a far-right website called The Gateway Pundit started writing misleading articles about ERIC. NPR found so-called election integrity community groups then began pressuring officials in their states. The irony, says J. Christian Adams, a conservative elections attorney, is that pulling out of ERIC will actually make voter fraud easier. It's then absolutely impossible to do cross-state checking to see who's voting twice in federal elections. So it's this crazy zeal to get out of ERIC that's going to cause voter fraud to flourish more. NPR found Republican primaries to have played a big role here as officials look to score points with their base. Miles Parks, NPR News, Washington. A federal trial opens today in Portland, Oregon, on whether a voter-passed initiative to regulate firearms in the state is constitutional. The case will test new constraints on gun regulations following a U.S. Supreme Court ruling last year. Oregon Public Broadcasting's Conrad Wilson has more. Oregon voters passed Measure 114 in November with just 50.6 percent of the vote. Measure 114 bans magazines that carry more than 10 rounds of ammunition. It also requires those wishing to buy a firearm to get a permit first. Permits will require applicants to complete a safety class and a federal background check. The law has been on hold pending litigation in state and federal court. The week-long trial here in Portland is one of the first to interpret permitting rules and magazine capacities after a landmark ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court last year that strengthened the rights granted under the Second Amendment. For NPR News, I'm Conrad Wilson in Portland. Prince Harry is expected to testify in London this week against a British tabloid newspaper. He accuses it of hacking his voicemail in search of news. NPR's Lauren Freyer explains. The articles date back to Prince Harry's 12th birthday when the Daily Mirror reported he felt bad about his parents' divorce. The Duke of Sussex also blames the media for the car crash that killed his mother and for what he calls racist coverage of his wife, Meghan. He vowed not to settle his cases as others have and instead try to expose at trial which newspaper executives knew about phone hacking and when. NPR's Lauren Freyer reporting. This is NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The MBTA is submitting a revised workers' safety plan to federal regulators following several incidents on the tracks. The Federal Transit Administration rejected the first proposal the T submitted last month. T General Manager Phil Ang told WCVBs on the record he's confident their new plan will pass muster. What we're doing is making sure that the procedures, the training that we have in place um, is enhanced to focus on those areas where there were some occurrences that resulted in near misses. That's how we also are better training dispatchers. If the FTA rejects the safety plan again, the T will have to stop all ongoing work on the tracks. That could have a huge impact on service.
Researchers are calling for Massachusetts to change the way it treats babies born to people taking opioid treatment medications. Under state law, those babies have to be reported for possible child abuse. WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports on a study from Massachusetts General Hospital that critiques the policy. The study, based on 26 parent interviews, finds the reporting mandate stigmatizes the use of medications to treat a substance use disorder during pregnancy. Lead author Dr. Davida Schiff says some parents stop taking the meds to avoid investigation once their baby is born. Our current policy and approach that is leading people to think that it's better for them to risk overdose and potentially death is really harmful. Child welfare officials say they support changes in the reporting mandate. Bills that would give clinicians more flexibility in reporting await hearings on Beacon Hill. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. Newton officials say they want more housing in their city. They're trying to rewrite zoning codes that would put more multifamily units in town. It's part of a new law that requires communities served by the MBTA to build more apartments. Those against the proposal tell the Boston Globe that apartments in taller buildings could make the city feel too, quote, urban. A New Jersey lawyer accused of committing a series of sexual assaults in Charlestown is due in a Boston court today. Prosecutors say DNA evidence ties the man to the attacks in 2007 and 2008. He waived extradition to Massachusetts and will appear today in Suffolk Superior Court. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash Mass Audubon. The Red Sox lost to the Tampa Bay Rays 6-2 yesterday at Fenway. The teams will wrap up their four-game series this afternoon. Rain this morning, then cloudy this afternoon. It'll get into the 60s. Cloudy overnight and in the 50s. Another round of showers tomorrow. It'll be in the 70s. Right now, it's 51 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is Lisa Mullins. Support from our listeners does more than pay for WBUR's journalism. Your support makes editorial independence a reality. And it all starts with your gift of $10 or maybe $15 a month. Those ongoing monthly contributions are how we pay for independent journalism. Sustain the journalism that sustains you. Start your monthly contribution at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thanks. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR, and you're starting your week with us. If you do that, maybe every week, think about joining WBUR as a contributor, as a monthly contributor. We are in our June fundraiser when we have a goal to make 700 listeners who maybe haven't given before into monthly contributors. We're asking you to think about what you get from WBUR every time you listen. You learn something. You feel something. Hopefully you have a memorable experience. And today we're asking you to create more of those moments 
more of those feelings, more of those memories. We're asking for your contribution of $10, 20 or $30 a month, and your tax-deductible gift will become more of the journalism you rely on. So give at WBWAR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi here with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. I'm so glad to be starting this week with this targeted fundraiser looking for 700 uh, hundred monthly givers. We're talking to you, asking you to sign up to give monthly. The average gift is $16 a month. If you could do that, great. If you can do more, $20, $25 a month, wonderful. If you can do less, 5 or 10 Fantastic. Some members of our Murrow Society will match that dollar for dollar for that editorial independence Lisa Mullins was talking about. I was just thinking about, can you imagine Lisa Mullins going on some rant about her personal feelings never. about them? Right? She would never do it because we are editorially independent and we bring you a clear-eyed look at the news and we bring you a sustained look at stories that matter and that takes long-term commitment. Hi, I'm environmental correspondent Barbara Moran. I've been working with my colleague, senior health reporter Gabriela Emanuel, to investigate the science and health impacts of the toxic forever chemicals called PFAS. I talked to a lot of people about how these chemicals contaminate our drinking water, including Bill Watcher, who lives in Stowe. Bill tested his well just to be safe and found a pretty high level of PFAS. He told me it was scary. I mean, you've lived here for 37 years and you've brought up two children here, and so you don't know what the long-term health implications are for all those years of drinking maybe tainted water. PFAS is scary, and the science is super complicated and kind of controversial. So we wanted to be really careful with these stories, so we reported them for months, working really hard to get them right. That meant listening to hours of legislative hearings, reading a lot of scientific papers, and interviewing dozens and dozens of people. So it was especially rewarding when we heard from listeners that these stories really hit home. So one man wrote, you told the story simply and clearly without alarmism, but driving home both the challenge and the urgency. Your work is important and makes a difference in the world. That's why WBR exists, to tell the stories that make a difference in the world. When you listen to our environmental coverage, you get clear reporting that helps you understand the scary stuff and maybe makes it a little less scary. That is the journalism you will be supporting when you give today and give monthly. And as you heard right there, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of support, support from you. These are stories that have a direct impact on your life. So be part of making them possible. And when you give this morning, there's a match. There's a dollar for dollar match by people, members of our Murrow Society. They have stepped up to say that they will match whatever you give today, dollar for dollar for the next 12 months so that you can have double the impact for WBUR. We are asking for your monthly contribution because it is the best way to support keeping our journalism strong for you and for our our entire community. Ongoing monthly contributions provide the funding we need to bring you the stories and conversations you count on, you rely on, and again, that have a direct impact on your life. So go to WBUR.org to learn how to give or call 1-800-909-9287. It's Monday morning. Help us make a strong start to this short fundraiser. Be the one to count us down from 700 
monthly givers. 1-800-909-9287. WBUR.org. Get it doubled for the first year. What an opportunity. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around Greater Boston. ALPrime.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. More than a lot of other nations, India moves by railroads. The world's most populous country has one of the world's busiest rail systems. Its older trains feature in Bollywood movies. Its newer ones are a symbol of Prime Minister Narendra Modi's economic modernization. So how did three trains collide, killing at least 275 people? Journalist Shalu Yadav has been following this story from New Delhi. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Steve. Hadn't India just been spending a lot of money upgrading the rail network? I'd been reading about this. Yes, Steve. And in recent years, the number of accidents have gone down because Modi government has spent billions of dollars to modernize the system. But even so, Indian railways remain a huge work in progress. you got to remember, Steve, this is one of the largest and oldest railways networks in the world, most of it uh, built by the British. And so maintenance is a bit of a Herculean task, even if you're spending lots of money. Mm. And Prime Minister Modi has prioritized high-speed trains in particular as part of his idea of connecting India faster. But some Critics say that that's uh, come at the expense of maintaining the older trains and the system that they run on. Oh, this is interesting because from the images of this terrible wreckage, these look like the classic, colorful, older Indian trains. Are the older ones on completely different safety systems? Well, most aspects of the older trains, I would say, remain on the older safe, uh, safety system. Uh, not much upgrading has happened to accommodate even the high-speed trains. Now, India's railway minister has hinted that a signal failure is the likely cause that led to this disaster, but he did not rule out a human error. Okay. Authorities say that both trains had approached Balasore district station under a green signal, indicating it was all safe. But it went horribly wrong. A passenger train en route the southern city of Chennai derailed after it rammed into a a stationary freight train. Its coaches that fell on the opposite track then got hit by another passenger train that was coming in high speed from the other side, wow. uh, leading to the worst uh, train disaster this country has seen in two decades, uh, Steve. How important is Indian train service, whether it's upgraded or not? Pretty important. Uh, it's in fact called the lifeline of the country as it ferries uh, over 25 million people every day. And it, it, it connects this vast country of 1.4 billion people. It's often, um, you know, the cheapest and fastest medium to get around for most people in the country, especially the working class who depend on it to get to the, you know, their workplace from villages to the cities. Even milk supplies and petrol supplies uh, depend on trains. And many of the families of the victims and the injured, uh, Steve, they are still dependent on train services too to find their loved ones. And with that service uh, disrupted, some are now taking long journeys by road to reach the spot where officials say that over 100 bodies are still unclaimed or unidentified. How's the recovery effort going? Well, it's still ongoing in full swing as we speak, Steve. Uh, It's taken over a thousand rescue workers who've been working over 24-7, you know, uh, since Friday night with heavy machinery to try and clear the tons of debris that lay on the tracks. 
Officials say that the operation should be back to normal by Tuesday night or Wednesday, Steve. Journalist Shalu Yadav is in New Delhi. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Voters in Mexico's biggest state made history yesterday. For the first time in nearly a century, the country's revolutionary party lost in gubernatorial elections. And it lost to an insurgent party founded by Mexico's president. As NPR's Ada Peralta reports, it's seen as part of a broad rejection of traditional politics across Latin America. By 10 a.m., Maria Orlando had voted, and she was already out at the market. For all 69 years of her life, she had voted for the party born in the aftermath of the Mexican Revolution. Everyone used to vote for them, she says, but they never helped, so this time, no way. She lives in Ecatepec, a massive suburb of Mexico City. She looks around. What she wants from her government is very simple. We need running water. We want for the potholes to be filled and for our streets to be safe, she says. For these gubernatorial elections, Mexico's most established political parties, the PRI, the PAN, and the PRD, parties that were once historical enemies, banded together to try to defeat Morena, the party of President Andrés Manuel López Obrador. But the super coalition failed. Instead, Delfina Gómez, a former teacher with relatively little political experience, won by a huge margin. What we're observing, I guess, is the consolidation of a political force that we never imagined that could have become so powerful so fast. That's political scientist Viri Rios. The president's party, Morena, didn't even exist a decade ago. But today, it controls the executive, Congress, and the states. And now that it has taken the biggest state in Mexico, it leaves the PRI, what was once the most powerful political party in Mexico, on life support. To Rios, Morena represents a wave of discontent in Latin America. Traditional parties have not paid dividends, so voters are turning to outsiders. With a huge mandate of destroying the elites and changing the political class as we know it. Rio says she hopes this insurgent party can meet the demands of the people of Mexico. Because at this point, Mexican voters have given every political party in the country a chance. And now, you know, what would happen if the political class does not give results to people that are hungry for changing its country? Hopefully, she says, the new party doesn't turn out the same as the old ones. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Ecatepec, in the state of Mexico. The Border Patrol says the number of people intercepted while trying to cross from Mexico into the U.S. without authorization has dropped by as much as 70 percent since the end of the pandemic-era restrictions known as Title 42. That means the policy reverted back to earlier rules, Title 8, so migrants deported after crossing the border are banned for five years from entering the U.S. again. And the Biden administration imposed new rules denying asylum to people who don't apply for protection in another country first. Democratic Representative Veronica Escobar's district, which includes El Paso, Texas, is on the front lines of this. So we called her to get her perspective on how things are going now. Congresswoman, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you so much for the opportunity. So you and other officials have made it clear that it has been a struggle to accommodate all the people coming across the border. So I know you've just been back home. What's the situation like in El Paso right now? Are there enough shelters and other resources? 
We do. We are doing well right now in El Paso. Uh, we are, the, as you mentioned, the numbers of migrants who are uh, um, turning themselves into Border Patrol, those numbers are way down. But in a different part of the sector, which is in New Mexico, those folks, uh, folks in that area are still seeing um, apprehensions. And in El Paso, we what we do is we help facilitate movement to other communities. Uh, we, we find out where the migrants want to go, where their sponsors live, and we help them get to those final destinations. In the final destinations in communities like New York City, like Chicago, other areas, that is the landing spot. And so those communities really are um, shouldering that latter part of the burden, which is receiving them permanently. So it's about that, I wanted to ask you about something. We keep learning about people being transported from southern border crossings and dropped other places. Like, for example, there are 16 people from Venezuela and Colombia who were flown to California by chartered plane, and they were dropped off on Friday outside a church in Sacramento. Like, what, What's your take on this? Is that part of that sort of planned process you're talking about, or is that something else? No, that's not part of the community hospitality that communities like El Paso, Brownsville, and other communities work on with receiving communities and receiving NGOs. This is something completely different. I suspect it's one of the red state mayors, whether it is Greg Abbott, whether it is Ron DeSantis, uh, or whether it is an unknown um, entity right now. But okay. these uh, the, the, these migrants, obviously the 16 you're referencing, are victims of okay. someone who is trying to use them as a political okay. tool. Okay, those would be governors. So the, the Biden administration's new measures require non-Mexican asylum seekers to show proof that they were denied asylum in another country first. It's being challenged in court by the ACLU. Where do you stand on this so-called third country asylum? Well, I'm not a fan, but what what I recognize as a member of Congress is the that the administration is using very limited, very few tools at its disposal in order to try to manage a process that should be managed by Congress, by legislative action. So it really is on Congress to do something, especially those of us who are not happy with uh, some of the proposals that we've seen recently or in the past. We'll, we'll talk about that then for a minute. You led a bipartisan group in February to El Paso. What progress are you making toward developing a bipartisan, a bipartisan approach to some kind of long-term solution, which is clearly what you're talking about here? You're right. I have been leading members to Congress, uh, from Congress to El Paso, really since 2019, since I, I was first elected. But we recently had a, a wonderful breakthrough. We, uh, My colleague, Maria Elvira Salazar from Florida, she and I introduced a bipartisan bill, the Dignity Act, uh, for Republicans, for Democrats, uh, and it is a real compromise. It is a solution to many of the challenges that we've been, been seeing, not just on the border, but in communities like New York and in countries south of us. Uh, it offers regularized status and opens up legal pathways and just re really reforms an outdated system. I'm very proud of the work, and what we're trying to do now is really get more co-sponsors. Before we let you go, as briefly as you can, a, a judge in your state of Texas is challenging the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival Program, DACA. You know, hundreds of thousands of people who were brought to this country as children are at risk of having their deferred status revoked. Does your plan include protections for them? It does. That is Congresswoman Veronica Escobar of Texas. She's a Democrat. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you.
This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Nuance is committed to helping physicians restore their work-life balance with DAX, an AI-powered solution that automates clinical documentation. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Threats to democracy make an informed public critical to America's future. WBUR will always be free thanks to listeners who give voluntarily. Give monthly to give real journalism a strong future. Here's how. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi here with the host of Radio Boston, Tiziana Deering. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. Thank you so much for being here with me. We're starting our week the same way you are here with WBUR and NPR, hearing the vital journalism you want to know about your world and your community. WBUR and NPR, we don't rely on reading things on Twitter. What you hear doesn't come from press releases. We go out and see things firsthand. We talk to people directly to bring the important stories to you, even when that isn't an easy thing to do. We ask the questions you'd ask if you had the time to be out there asking. We do this for you, but we can't do it without you. So we're asking you to start a monthly contribution of $10 or $15 for WBUR so we can keep providing the journalism that is essential to our lives today and tomorrow. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And Tiziana is going to tell you another great reason to give this morning. Yes, this is a short, targeted uh, fundraiser for us. We're inviting 700 people to become monthly contributors to WBUR because it is a fantastic, sustained way to support the sustained journalism you rely on Mm -hmm. here. For those long-term stories you know we're going to pay attention to for you every day. And right now, some members members of our Murrow Society have said, hey, you do it and we'll double it for you. Uh, average monthly gift of a, of a uh, monthly giver is $16 a month. That'll become 32 If you can do more, you can do 25 That'll be 50 a month. If you can do five, it'll be 10 for the first year. But to do that, you've got to give now at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And our Murrow Society members who are making this match do it because they know how important it is the WBUR and NPR continue to exist for you. Have you ever wondered how you would feel if tomorrow you woke up and public radio was just gone? Oh, man, that would be tough. I, I think it would be devastating. Well, I would grieve because there would be no replacement for it. We asked listeners around the country that very question. I've been listening to NPR for a long time. So NPR has been a giant part of my life. And I would be devastated if it wasn't there anymore. It would be a very depressing ride to work. I don't know if there's enough cups of coffee in the world that would be able to get me over that. There there really is nothing else like it. We donate, but there's a lot of people out there that listen that probably don't donate. And I think uh, that's a really great thing to put into perspective is how would you feel? There's an easy way to feel good about public radio and the financial health of your station. Just support it. Really, do it right now. Call or go online. Your tax-deductible contribution will help ensure public radio isn't going anywhere. It'll be here when you turn on your radio tomorrow. And thanks. 
WBOR is a listener-supported public good, and what you heard there was just so many importance to remember, so many reasons why it is important to give. And again, we will always be free and open to anyone and everyone, but we do that thanks to our listeners who support our work voluntarily. Be that support for us, and do it this morning when your contribution will be doubled. We're asking you to give maybe $10, it becomes 20, give 20, that becomes 40, $30 a month becomes $60 a month. That will help us produce the deep journalism that is the lifeblood of our city and our region. This is how you keep your community informed and stay connected to your community. So to give, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We know you know there's something different about what you get from WBUR and NPR, whether it's online, it's in person, it's on air. We know because that's why we report here Mm -hmm. (laughs) versus somewhere else. We know you know that this is an essential asset. We are editorially independent. We are clear-eyed. We are reliant on the facts, and we're not reliant on special interests. Mm -hmm. To do that, we need monthly contributors who say, I can do a little, and I'll take advantage of those Murrow Society members who will double what I can do. The average gift is $16 a month. Double that is 32 If you can do more, fantastic. 20 40 that would become 40 80 If you can do $5 a month, this year it's 10 It makes a huge difference. We are seeking 700 monthly givers for the fantastic impact it will have on the sustained journalism you rely on. 1-800-909-9287. WBUR.org. Start the week with us. And thank thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Biden administration says hundreds of millions of dollars will be spent to eliminate many railroad crossings in 32 states. As NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports, the Transportation Department is trying to eliminate collisions between trains and vehicles and reduce delays and disruptions caused by block crossings. The goal of this money is to create railroad crossings, such as underpasses, bridges, and overpasses, to help drivers and pedestrians cross railroads safely. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg told reporters that the changes will help alleviate bottlenecks in communities that can lead to slowed emergency response, increased emissions, and more. We see countless stories of people unable to get to work uh, on time, uh, goods being blocked from getting where they need to be, uh, and first responders being delayed uh, by these uh, these trains that can be slowed or stopped. The funding will start with just over $500 million from the bipartisan infrastructure law. Officials expect more funding over the next five years. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington. 
A signal failure is being looked at as the possible cause of Friday's deadly train crash in India. At least 275 people were killed when a passenger train slammed into an idle freight train and then derailed into the path of another train. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts has a housing shortage and prices keep rising. That's why some housing advocates and developers are looking at modular construction as a potential tool to ease that crunch. More now from WBUR's Yasmin Ammer. Unlike traditional construction, factory-made buildings are fabricated off-site, then shipped on a truck and assembled. Sarah Ann Logan from Volumetric Building Company's office in Somerville says factory-made buildings are becoming more popular in states like Pennsylvania and California. And I think part of that is because it is getting more expensive to build traditionally. We don't have the workforce to build traditionally anymore. Some critics have pointed to low quality of manufactured buildings in the past. Advocates say with the right quality control, big buildings can go up twice as fast. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. A new lawsuit against Quincy-based Compass Medical claims the company was negligent when it shut down. The South Shore medical chain closed last week without warning. The lawsuit claims Compass made over 70,000 patients find new access to care without notice. Those who filed the lawsuit tell the Boston Globe Compass violated industry standards with its abrupt closure. Compass has not specifically said why it closed, other than that last month its plans to stay open, quote, collapsed. The unofficial mayor of Harvard Square has died. Mary Catherine Dybel passed away last week. She was the owner of Upstairs on the Square and Upstairs at the Pudding. Most recently, she was the director of development at the Cambridge Center for Adult Education. Dybel was 72. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Some lackluster defense sank the Red Sox yesterday. They lost to the Tampa Bay Rays 6-2 at Fenway. The teams will play again this afternoon. It's a makeup game for Friday night's rainout. Showers this morning and cloudy this afternoon will have high temperatures in the low 60s. Tonight it falls to the low 50s. Tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds with showers and thunderstorms possible beginning around mid-afternoon. It's 51 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the United States Postal Service, reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash moving forward. From Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. An Asian defense dialogue in Singapore over the weekend has ended much as it began, with the U.S. and China at odds, and with a sharp rebuke from China's defense minister who bluntly told Western countries to, quote-unquote, mind their own business. So much for dialogue. 
General Li Shang-Fu's remarks came during his first international appearance as defense chief. His criticism came after the U.S. said a Chinese ship nearly collided with an American vessel in the Taiwan Strait over the weekend. With us now is NPR's Emily Fang, who's been following all this. Emily, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Michelle. Tell us more about this near collision. What happened? It happened when a U.S. warship and a Canadian warship were doing a joint patrol in the Taiwan Strait on Saturday, and these transits are pretty routine. But this particular transit coincided with a speech that U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was delivering at the Shangri-La Dialogue, which is this annual defense summit in Singapore. And while he was giving the speech, a Chinese Navy ship cut right in front of the U.S. warship, apparently getting within about 150 yards of the vessel. These things are really hard to stop or slow down. And in fact, last month, there was another dangerous incident in the air where a Chinese jet cut in front of a U.S. spy plane. I spoke to China's Colonel Xi Daopeng while I was at the dialogue in Singapore, and he was basically unrepentant about these incidents. He's saying the U.S. can't come into waters around China and basically create crises and then ask China to follow its rules. Though I should note, these incidents happened in international waters and airspace. But this tension between the U.S. and China spilled out into the open with these two dueling speeches delivered by the two countries' defense chiefs in Singapore this weekend. So, you know, tell us more about what they said in those speeches. Well, both the U.S. and China laid out how they want to deepen their partnerships with partners in the U.S. Uh, in the Asia Pacific. They want to do more drills with other militaries. They want to strengthen their regional alliances. And both said they were open to high-level dialogue with each other to avoid conflict. But of course, the U.S. and China are competing with each other in this exact region. And another big sticking point at the summit was in 2018, the U.S. actually sanctioned Li Shangfu, and now he's the Chinese defense chief. So China wants those sanctions dropped on him before the U.S.'s Lloyd Austin gets to meet with him. What did other countries in the Asia-Pacific region at the dialogue have to say? One point of contention is in Southeast Asia, which is really divided where to position themselves in this U.S.-China great power competition. There are some countries in the region, like Cambodia, who have stronger pro-China sentiment. And then there are other countries, like Vietnam and the Philippines, who have territorial disputes of their own with China. And so they've largely sided with the U.S. This territorial dispute um, originates from the fact that China claims almost all of the South China Sea, which Southeast Asia borders. That claim has been largely rejected by an international tribunal. But this divide in Southeast Asia really spilled out into the open at the dialogue after China's defense chief spoke, and delegates from Vietnam and the Philippines stood up and criticized Chinese conduct. That is NPR's Emily Fang. Emily, thank you. Thanks, Michelle. We now have some advice for summer. You've heard the advice to put on sunscreen. Many ads will say this or that brand is the best, but it seems that picking the right sunscreen is less important than using enough. That is one of several tips we're hearing from NPR's Allison Aubrey. When I rummaged through last season's pool bag and found a few bottles of half-used sunscreen, I figured I'd lather some on. I mean, at $10 a bottle, why not? But Ida Orango, a dermatologist at Baylor College of Medicine, persuaded me to toss it out. I always tell people that you need to look at the expiration date and get rid of them. And even if they haven't expired, my kind of mantra is every spring I buy all new sunscreen for my household. The active ingredients can degrade, and she says bacteria can get into the creams too. So once I tossed out the old ones, I was in the market for new sunscreens. I'd always bought the standard chemical sunscreen sprays in the past, though recent studies found some of these chemicals can get into the bloodstream. Dr. Tola Oyasanya, a dermatologist with Kaiser Permanente in the Baltimore area, told me she recommends an alternative— 
physical sunscreens made from titanium dioxide and zinc oxide. They're also called mineral sunscreens, and some newer versions go on without that thick, white, pasty look. I think that zinc oxide and titanium dioxide are much, much safer than chemical sunscreens. Um, because they're so inert, they're less likely to enter the bloodstream. And they're better for sensitive skin, since they're less likely to irritate, she says. As for choosing the SPF, lots of sunscreens come in SPF 50 or even 80, but it turns out the sunscreens with the highest sun protection factor aren't necessarily better. SPF 30 is sufficient, and that's because SPF 30 is going to filter 97% of the UV rays that are coming through from the sun. And as we go up in SPF, SPF 50, SPF 75, SPF 100, you're really getting a minuscule increase. She tells her patients to focus less on the SPF and more on the amount of sunscreen they use. And Dr. Orengo agrees. One mistake many people make is using too little. The recommended amount is about an ounce and a half of liquid sunscreen. We always say it's like a shot glass full of sunscreen is for the whole body. And about a teaspoon for the face. When it comes to spray sunscreens, Dr. Oyesanya says it's a little trickier to gauge the amount. I think that spray sunscreens are a bit risky. Because of the spray, it's easy to miss a whole area of your body, especially if you're applying it outside. The wind may carry the sunscreen away. She says make sure all the parts of your body that need to be covered feel wet after you spray. And remember, you need to reapply about every two hours. Dr. Jennifer Holman, who is a fellow of the American Academy of Dermatology, says sunscreens don't last very long, especially when people sweat and swim. If you're exposed to the water, even with sunscreens labeled as water resistant, you're really only getting about 80 to 90 minutes of protection. So reapply often, even on cloudy days. Dermatologists say some of the worst sunburns are linked to overcast days when people may assume they don't need sunscreen. You're still getting about 80% of the UV rays filtered through those clouds on a cloudy day, so you absolutely can still you know, experience damage from UV radiation on a cloudy day. So keep your sunscreen handy, even when it's not sunny. But Dr. Oyasanya says one mistake people make is to leave sunscreen stored in the trunk or glove box of their car where it gets too hot. The sunscreen is actually being degraded by heat. And so the components of the sunscreen that are supposed to protect you are getting broken down slowly over time. One thing you can keep in your car is clothing or hats to protect you from the sun. Baseball caps protect part of your face. But dermatologists say what's better is a three-inch brim hat made with tightly woven material. Dr. Jennifer Holman says fair-skinned people are at higher risk of burns and melanoma, but people with dark skin are vulnerable to damage from the sun, too. I mean, I've cut skin cancers off of every skin type that I can think of because that risk is still there. That's why sunscreen is recommended for people of all ages and skin types. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. From news headlines to deeper dives into issues of real consequence, from morning edition to all things considered, from stories online at WBUR.org, 
to conversations on stage at City Space, everything you get from WBUR depends on a solid foundation of listener support. Help us get to our June fundraiser goal to keep our journalism strong. Here's how to help. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. That was Daryl C. Murphy there, host of our daily podcast, The Common. One of the many ways that we are stepping up to bring you the news and conversations you want in all the possible ways available. This morning's episode explores the issues around the MCAS standardized test and why some educators worry the test is leaving English language learners behind. That's important news. We know you want to know. Support that work that you depend on. It's tax deductible. And when you give this morning, not only do you start your morning and your week off right, your contribution will be matched dollar for dollar. And Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering is here and she's going to tell you more about that. But one more time before I pass it off, go to WBUR.org to give or call 1-800-909-9287. Tiziana, take it away. Hey there, Ripa. So great to start the week with the Morning Edition community. We have a targeted fundraiser we're doing this week, inviting 700 people to become monthly givers to WBUR because it's such an incredible way to support the, support the sustained attention that we put on the stories we all care about here. And right now, this morning, some members of our Moreau Society have said, hey, this is important enough. We'll put our dollars on the table with you. You accept the invitation. Become one of these 700 monthly givers. You do it today. We'll come with you. Uh, The average gift is $16 a month. You do that for the first year. It'll be $32 a month. Mm -hmm. If you can do more, if you can do 25, it'll be 50. If you can do five, it'll be 10. It all matters. Uh, The number is 1-800-909-9287. And the website is wbur.org. You know about uncertainty. We've been reporting on it. Radio Boston did a segment recently on business confidence levels in Massachusetts being what they were in December 2020. Hmm. Well, that affects us here at WBUR, too. Here's our CEO, Margaret Lowe. We have tens of thousands of supportive listeners, members, people who tell us that we're their lifeline, that even on the hardest news days, we remind them of their humanity. But the truth is, it's gotten harder and harder to find new members, and that scares us. I mean, it definitely keeps me up at night. Stations across the country are experiencing the same decline in the number of donors at a time when we know trustworthy information is so crucial to our collective well-being. So... My hope is that our listeners can help us buck this trend. We know that many of you listening spend more time with WBUR than you do with some of the people you love most. We also know that there are so many good causes to support. But if we matter in your life at all, if you can't imagine a day or a week without WBUR and NPR, we'd love to hear from you. Our CEO, Margaret Lowe, right there, being really direct about it, saying, you know, this is a really hard time. It's a hard time to have listeners be giving. We need to buck that trend. We need you to step up. We know there are people listening. We know you're listening and you listen every morning and you depend on what you hear here every morning. We need you to be a part of what we're doing here and support it because 
It's getting harder to find people who will support it. Listener support is the foundation of our independent journalism. It's the largest share of our funding. You are giving us the freedom to report without fear or favor. And when you do it now, you your contribution will be matched. It will be doubled. Whatever you do will be doubled. So go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'll do it again. WBUR.org. Or call 1-800-909-9287. Start your week and your morning off right by being a part of what we're doing here at WBUR. And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Zoom. Zoom One is designed for AI-powered collaboration across phone, video, messaging, whiteboards, and work apps, keeping global teams connected. One platform to connect. Zoom One. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Republican lawmakers in Texas are moving to change the way elections are run in one county. Harris County is home to Houston, the state's most populous city and a Democratic stronghold. A couple of bills now on the desk of Republican Governor Greg Abbott would give state officials more power over elections in Harris County. Houston Public Media's Andrew Schneider has this report. Harris County has struggled to conduct elections in recent years. Election Day 2022 was more of the same. Some polls in Democratic-leaning neighborhoods opened hours late. Others experienced malfunctioning machines. And then there were more than two dozen polling sites in Republican-leaning neighborhoods that were forced to temporarily shut down because they ran out of paper ballots. Terry Wheeler was a Republican election judge in Cyprus, northwest of Houston. I absolutely believe it was on purpose. I've never seen anything like this, the way that they blew us off over the phone and refused to get us paper ballots. Democrats largely swept the 2022 elections in Harris County. Houston Public Media conducted a five-month investigation of the county's management of those elections. It revealed numerous problems, but no evidence that the county had deliberately undersupplied Republican polling sites. Nor did it determine that the number of people turned away at those sites would have significantly affected the outcome of most contests. Nevertheless, Republicans at the state and county level decided Harris County's election system was broken and needed state intervention to fix it. State Senator Paul Betancourt of Houston was the author of two key election bills related to his home county. Senate Bill 1750 basically returns elections in Harris County back to the elected officials, the county clerk and the tax assessor, like it was before the establishment of the now defunct elections administrator office. Like many Republicans, Betancourt holds the county's appointed elections administrator, Clifford Tatum, responsible for the problems of Election Day 2022. He says the elected officials would be more responsive to the voters. But then there's SB 1933. That basically grants the Secretary of State oversight under specific circumstances for Harris County elections, if necessary, through a complaint process established in the bill. In other words, it would allow the state to override, even remove, those same elected officials. Both bills were amended after being filed to target Harris County and Harris County alone. 
County Attorney Christian Menefee, a Democrat, said in an outdoor press conference that the two bills set a dangerous precedent in one of Texas's most diverse counties. We have a lot of elected officials, a lot of people who were voted into office to serve their community. Yet these bills target three black elected officials in Harris County, the elections administrator, the county clerk, and the tax assessor collector. Menevee said these bills won't go unchallenged. We're suing the state of Texas to protect Harris County, to protect Harris County residents, to protect our public officials, and to stop the state from targeting us. The current elections administrator has taken steps to alleviate the problems that have plagued the county, but his job is going away, forcing the county clerk to scramble to oversee November's general election when Houstonians will choose a new mayor. For NPR News, I'm Andrew Schneider in Houston. It's just after midnight in a ballroom in the ornate Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, California. A packed crowd watches a presidential candidate give a victory speech after winning the California primary. Now it's on to Chicago and let's win there. It's June 5, 1968, 55 years ago today, and Senator Robert F. Kennedy is gaining momentum to secure the Democratic nomination. But this is the last time he will address the public. NPR's Ashley Montgomery has the story. Almost five years after his older brother, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated in Dallas, Texas, Robert Kennedy is making his own run for the White House. As Kennedy walks off stage at the Ambassador Hotel through a pack of eager reporters, the crowd chants his name. We want Bobby. He shakes hands with supporters and exits the ballroom through the kitchen. And then the crowd hears what witnesses would later describe as the sound of firecrackers. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? A gunman fired a 22 caliber revolver, hitting Kennedy and injuring five others. Not only Senator Kennedy, oh my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. One of Kennedy's friends who worked on his campaign, an Olympic gold medalist named Rafer Johnson, wrestles the gunman to the ground and tries to disarm him. Okay, now hold on to the guy. Hold on to him. In the chaos, a teenage busboy comforts Kennedy, who sprawled out on the floor. I kneeled onto him and put my hand between the cold concrete and his head just to make him comfortable. This is the voice of Juan Romero, the busboy. He spoke to StoryCorps in 2018. I could feel a steady stream of blood coming through my fingers. I had a rosary in my shirt pocket, and I took it out, thinking that he would need it a lot more than me. I wrapped around his right hand, and then they wheeled him away. Kennedy died the next day. He was 42. Kennedy's widow, Ethel, was pregnant with their 11th child. Robert Kennedy was memorialized as a liberal icon who found support among Black and Latino voters. Here's NPR commentator Rod McLeish in 1983. He made a virtue of abrasiveness in his 1968 campaign, deliberately taunting affluent constituencies on behalf of the disadvantaged. But Kennedy was complicated and contradictory, especially when it came to one particular decision. When he was U.S. Attorney General, he authorized the FBI to wiretap Martin Luther King Jr.'s telephones in 1963 because of suspicion that one of King's aides had communist ties. But 
Kennedy was a well-known advocate for marginalized communities and spoke about racial equality during his campaign. Two months before his own death, he gave a speech to a mostly black crowd in Indianapolis about the assassination of Dr. King. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and compassion toward one another, feeling of justice toward those who still suffer, whether they be white or whether they be black. The day Kennedy died, on June 6, 1968, Congress responded by expanding Secret Service protection to include major presidential candidates. The man who shot Kennedy was convicted of first-degree murder and continues to serve a life sentence. Today, there is no Ambassador Hotel. It was demolished in 2006. The site in L.A. is now a complex of public schools called the Robert F. Kennedy Community Schools. There are vibrant murals all over campus and in the hallways. The walls of the school library are adorned with portraits and huge, colorful paintings of Kennedy. Most of the students here are Latino. And over the years, many of the students who graduate from here are the first in their families to attend college. Ashley Montgomery, NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer, serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. I'm Rupa Shinoy, host of Morning Edition, here with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. You just heard there a recounting of history made 55 years ago. It still reverberates today, and we bring it to you and demonstrate how it still has an impact today. Stories like that tie our lives and, and generations of people together. So if you can, show your support for this service that you depend on to give you context, to give you to keep you informed on what's happening today and what happened in history and bring it all together. We are your community, and we keep your community informed. Be responsible for making sure that we can continue to do this important work and give this morning when your contribution will be doubled by members of our Murrow Society. Just call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Yeah, Rupa, you know, I'm old enough in my life to have those moments now. And um, when they have happened, it's NPR and WBUR I've turned to, Mm -hmm. um, you know, long before I got here as host of Radio Boston. And it's because we rely on public radio in those moments that we're asking 700 people, we're asking you to become a monthly contributor this week in this small fundraiser. And it's because of that that some members of our Murrow Society have said, hey, we'll come with you. You come to the table, become a monthly contributor, we'll match. Just this morning, we will match every dollar you give for the first year. The average monthly gift is $16. If you do that, we'll make it 32. If you can do more, if you can give 25 a month, we'll make it 50. If you can give five, we'll make it 10. Do it this morning because we want to bring 700 people into that monthly match community because we rely in these moments 
on public radio to give it to us cleanly, clearly, with empathy and with quality. Mm-hmm. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And just to remind you why we really emphasize the monthly contributions, that makes it possible for us to plan. That that makes it possible for us to know what we're going to have a year in, from now. So we can plan the stories that we're going to bring you, the coverage that we're going to bring you. The election so, that we're going to bring yeah, you. <laughs> I know, right? There's a lot to do. We want to do it for you. We want to keep being there for you. We need your support to do that. So please go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Think about everything you get from WBUR. Think about what it does for you, what it does for your family, what it does for your community every single day, and be part of it. You'll be proud to start your week off by supporting us. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The North American Aerospace Defense Command says U.S. fighter jets intercepted a private plane flying over Washington, D.C. yesterday. NORAD says the small plane did not respond. NPR's James Jones reports the plane went on to crash in a remote area of Virginia. A loud boom that rattled windows and nerves across the D.C. region was generated by NORAD aircraft authorized to go supersonic to intercept the plane. NORAD says efforts to reach the pilot of the Cessna 560 Citation jet were unsuccessful and that they continue to attempt to contact the pilot until the plane crashed. Washington, D.C. has a tightly controlled restricted airspace, but federal officials have not indicated that restricted space was breached by the Cessna. The plane was expected to land in Long Island, New York, but according to flight tracking apps, the plane never landed and swung back towards D.C. before crashing. James Jones, NPR News. Officials in India say a signal failure may be to blame for last Friday's horrific train crash that killed 275 people. About 1,000 others were injured. Reporter Shalu Yadav says the accident was sparked when one passenger train crashed into a parked freight train. Authorities say that both trains had approached Balasore District Station under a green signal indicating it was all safe, but it went horribly wrong. A passenger train en route the southern city of Chennai derailed after it rammed into a stationary freight train. Its coaches that fell on the opposite track then got hit by another passenger train that was coming in high speed from the other side, leading to the worst uh, train disaster this country has seen in two decades. She spoke to NPR's Morning Edition. Indian officials say they have cleared the tracks and resumed some limited train service. However, relatives are still trying to locate missing loved ones. Saudi Arabia will cut an additional one million barrels of oil per day starting next month. NPR's Aya Batrawi reports the move could help shore up oil prices that have been trading at under $80 per barrel. The group known as OPEC+, Plus, led by Saudi Arabia and Russia, ultimately decided against making deeper production cuts this year during their meeting in Vienna over the weekend. 
The group will maintain cuts already in place, but several countries, including Russia and Nigeria, will cut their production by about 1.4 million barrels a day starting next year. One exception is the United Arab Emirates, which will boost its daily production in 2024 following frustrations with its OPEC quotas. OPEC Plus described the approach as proactive and preemptive. Saudi Arabia announced separately a voluntary cut of a million barrels a day in July. Like other major energy producers, higher oil prices remain vital to its economy. Aya Botrawi, NPR News, Dubai. This is NPR. This is WBWAR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Leaders with the state transit agency are confident federal regulators will approve a new worker safety plan. The MBTA submits its new proposal to the Federal Transit Administration today. MBTA General Manager Phil Ang told WCVBs on the record that the plan includes more details more clarity on the short-term measures, which we have been very focused on. Mm-hmm. Um, what we provided was those measures in a, in, a, in a summary of also where we wanted to go longer term. So what they asked for really is just to resubmit it in a way that focuses on the next 60 days. Last month, the feds rejected the agency's first version of its worker safety plan. A new lawsuit claims Quincy-based Compass Medical abandoned its patients when it shut down without warning. Those who filed the lawsuit tell the Boston Globe Compass was negligent when it closed without notice last month. More than 70,000 patients were left to find new access to care. Compass has not specifically said why it shut down. It says its plans to stay open, quote, collapsed. Eversource is making progress on a climate-friendly heating and cooling pilot project in Framingham. The utility is building a so-called networked geothermal system. It'll use a series of deep wells, below-ground pipes, and pumps to heat and cool 37 buildings. More now from WBUR's Miriam Wasser. There's not much to see above ground right now, just three green manhole covers. But below each is a 600-foot hole. Way down there, the Earth's temperature is a constant 55 degrees. We're using them to exchange heat with the Earth to heat buildings in the winter and cool them in the summer. Eric Bosworth is with Eversource. He says when the project is complete, 113 boreholes in a mile of underground pipes will circulate hot and cold water. The goal is to have everybody up and running, you know, this year before the cold weather comes. Network geothermal systems are incredibly energy efficient and reliable. Many environmentalists say they could play a big role in helping the state meet its climate goals. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy is in Boston today. The public health leader joins Senator Ed Markey for a youth mental health summit at Boston University. Last month, Murthy issued an advisory on teen mental health. He also urged lawmakers to strengthen safety standards for social media. In sports, the Red Sox lost to the Rays 6-2 yesterday at Fenway. The teams will play again this afternoon. Rain this morning, then cloudy this afternoon. It'll get into the 60s. Cloudy overnight and in the 50s. Another round of showers tomorrow. It'll be in the 70s. Right now, it's 52 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. 
You know that phrase, strength in numbers? That's how WBUR really works. I'm Deepa Fernandes. WBUR's journalism thrives through collective contributions of tens of thousands of listeners each year. Join us during this brief but important fundraiser. Help us meet our June fundraising goal by making a monthly contribution now. Here's how you can contribute. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You're listening to Morning Edition here on WBUR on a Monday morning. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi here with the host of Radio Boston, Tiziana Deering, and we're kicking off our short June fundraiser, asking 700 people to join us as monthly contributors. This is a really important time to support WBUR and the work you hear here that you depend on every day. We are doing some of our most ambitious and essential work at a time when the global economy remains uncertain. We, But we are only as strong as the support we have from our community. And that's you. You are our community. So if you can, start a monthly contribution of 10 or $20 or more if you have the means we will give your monthly contributions back to you and your community in the form of journalism and storytelling you won't find anywhere else. Journalism that makes us all more informed and engaged with each other and with our democracy, which is so important right now. So again, go to WBUR.org to give or call 1-800-909-9287. And Tiziana is going to tell you why this morning is a really another really good time to give. Well, Partly just because I get to be here with the Morning Edition community, and it's always a wonderful time to be with you and for you to give. But especially this Monday morning as we launch this targeted fundraiser inviting 700 people to become monthly contributors, some members of our Murrow Society have said, hey, we'll do it with you. Mm-hmm. This is so important. This is such a fantastic way to support WBUR over the long term because WBUR will be there for you over the long term uh, that we'll put money on the table too. If you give um, a monthly gift will double it for the first year. The average monthly gift is $16 a month. You do that, we'll make it 32 for the first year. You give 25, we'll make it 50. You give $5 a month, we'll make it 10. Come to the table, we'll be there with you uh, because it is so important that 700 people say, yep, that's me. So we're asking you to say, yep, that's me at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. This is Laura Dern. If there is a world on the other side of a wall somewhere where artists run free and journalists share a point of view to educate us into alternative opinion and voice, and it's used beautifully, and there's opera and Sesame Street and National Public Radio, I want to be on that side of the wall. So thank you, National Public Radio. I pray that you're supported forever. We need you. It's how I get my news. It's how I get to know about human behavior. It's how I, thanks to people like Terry Gross, learn about film and invention. And I care deeply about it. And I never, ever want anyone to feel anxiety about losing voice in our uh, beautiful democracy. Think about what you get from WBUR and how it supports our democracy, what you know about it, what the tools you have to improve your your democracy. Just this morning, reporter Yasmin Ammer on a possible solution to Massachusetts's housing crisis, which is a, a 
dire ongoing problem that we need to keep our eye on and talk about solutions. And we're doing that for you here on WBUR. Throughout last week, we kept you up to date on the debt ceiling crisis deal and whether it was happening. We also, you know, bring regularly bring you stories about PFAS and other really important aspects of your life that you want us to keep track of so you know what's going on with you and your community. But we need your support to do that. And when you give this morning, you your support will be doubled. Your contribution will be doubled. So $10 becomes 20, 20 becomes 40, 40 becomes 80. And that is very, very important support for us because listeners are the biggest share of our, our budget. Like they are they are who powers our journalism every day. So please go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You are our engine. Join us. Become a monthly contributor. Be the next in that 700. How great to hit that goal this week and have your money doubled by doing it today. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. We're asking you this morning to be the one. And thanks. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Here are some of the Republicans running for president in 2024. Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott and Ron DeSantis are all running along with Asa Hutchinson and a handful of others. This week we get three more, former Vice President Mike Pence, New Jersey's former Governor Chris Christie, and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. So let's talk through that expanding field with conservative commentator Al Cardenas, who is following all this. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Good to be with you. How does this expanding field compare to past Republican primaries? Well, it's pretty much following a pattern we've had in the last two decades. Uh, In 2008, we had a field in similar size as we did in 2012 and 2016. And last time we didn't because with an incumbent on board, that usually doesn't happen. But uh, and so we we're following a pattern we've been following for a while. Uh, Candidates drop out uh, typically you know, as as money maybe doesn't come in or the number of uh, supporters doesn't add up or or they uh, drop out for other reasons. But uh, most people should be on the stage in August when we have our first primary mm-hmm. uh, if they qualify. I've heard there's so many candidates, there's a possibility of having to split up the debate or knock people off the stage. You're telling me, Mr. Cardenas, the pattern is a very big Republican field, bigger even than on the Democratic side if we went back through some of those same elections. But my question is not just about the personalities, but the substance. When you look at this widening field of candidates, do they represent different directions for the Republican Party? Well, it's interesting because sometimes you have on board candidates that are kind of one-issue candidates. Uh, and in this case, uh, there's a, a lot of connection involving culture issues, uh, you know, and, and uh, you have some that I think there's three three lanes here. One of one of the lanes are people who say, hey, the election in 2020 was fair. This whole idea about election fraud is nonsense. There are those who rely on the election fraud issue. And then there are those who uh, who don't want to talk about it. Uh, that's one category. The other category involves social issues, and you get people out of that lane. The third category are what I call the still Ronald Reagan candidates, and Mike Pompeo, Asa Hutchinson, uh, 
folks like that are in that third lane. Uh, and then we'll see. The first lane's pretty crowded. You know, you have uh, Donald Trump and you have Ron DeSantis. Uh, there's a second lane where it's kind of a mix with Nikki Haley and and folks like that. And then if eventually, if you have the entries we're looking at this week, you'll have folks who I call disruptors, like uh, Chris Christie and others who are up there to kind of, you know, shake and bake in the debate and see how that ends up. I'll just note, when you said these still Reagan candidates, that's a candidate, Asa Hutchinson, who I think polled around 0% in a recent poll. I mean, distinguished former governor, but just not a lot of support yet. And Mike Pompeo is already out. It doesn't sound like the Reagan lane, the old Republican Party, is in a very strong place. Yep, yep. I think we've crossed that that bridge. Uh, The Republican Party uh, doesn't look similar. There are those who are still trying to hold on to the Ronald Reagan you know, mantra. And those are folks who are primarily anti-Trump. And uh, they they use that Ronald Reagan moniker as, as a way to distinguish themselves. If you had to pick a candidate that you thought could tear up Donald Trump, that could give him a serious run for his money, who would you pick? Boy, at this time, it's Ron DeSantis. Uh, I thought that for sure. Uh, six months ago, they were running neck and neck. And then uh, Ron DeSantis kind of fumbled the start. And uh, he's dropped down quite a bit. Uh, the question is, can anybody uh, get ahead of him? My sense is, as you look at this race, you have to look at us saying, is anyone catching up with uh, Ron DeSantis? Is anybody about to overtake him? So it's a brand new race. Right now, it's a Trump-DeSantis race. And if someone can catch up to or even surpass DeSantis, it turns into a new race. And I have no clue who that might be. We've only got about 10 seconds, but will the sheer number of candidates cancel each other out and leave Donald Trump the inevitable nominee? Yeah, very possible. Donald Trump seems to have a very solid base, and that's probably not going to move. Al Cardenas, thanks so much. Really appreciate talking with you. My pleasure, Steve. This week in London, Prince Harry is set to do something that has not been done by any British royal for more than a century. He's going to take the witness stand in court. The Duke of Sussex is set to testify in a phone hacking trial. He is one of several plaintiffs suing British newspapers for allegedly hacking their phones. It's been a notorious and apparently long-standing practice of the British tabloids, as NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from London. In 2002, a 13-year-old girl named Millie Dowler vanished on her way home from school. A nationwide search followed, and Millie's mom, Sally, went on TV pleading. If someone has taken Millie and is holding her, then please, please give her back to us. Sally and her husband, Bob, kept calling their daughter's cell phone. Her voicemail was always full, until four days later. I rang her phone. Yes. And it clicked through onto her voicemail. So I heard her voice. Yes. And I was, it it was just like a jump. She's she's picked up her voicemails, Bob. She's alive. That's Sally testifying before a government inquiry nine years later about her false hope. Because Millie was already dead, murdered by a serial killer. And her voicemail had been hacked by a newspaper covering the story. There's always been a role for investigative reporting. But there has to be a public interest for it. And those lines were clearly being crossed. Former police detective Jackie Hames' own phone was hacked by a newspaper eager for clues in a murder her husband was investigating. The paper even hired private eyes to snoop around their house. We had two very young children at the time. Things were moved in our garden. 
Our mail was tampered with. And at one stage, we were followed. This was in the early 2000s, when Rupert Murdoch's UK tabloids actually made profits and held sway even with prime ministers, says media analyst Alice Enders. It was just a huge kind of industrial operation to drive sales. You know, and there were always pictures of Mr. Murdoch going into number 10. And they tried very hard to cover their tracks. But when everybody does it, it becomes part of the culture. That culture is largely gone now, killed off by phone encryption, falling ad revenues, and the closure of the Murdoch tabloid News of the World, seen as the biggest offender. His company has paid more than a billion dollars to settle hacking claims. But trials have been rare. Until Prince Harry decided to sue over stories he says are based on material obtained illegally. He has the financial resources. He's lending his celebrity, his notoriety, and he will not stop these paparazzi. Who were they? The paparazzi that chased his mother through the streets of Paris. This is more of a kind of revenge mission, I think. The Guardian's media editor, Jim Watterson, says this may be personal for Prince Harry, but the raucous British tabloids have already had their power curtailed by new privacy laws that may now be stricter than those even in the U.S. Some of the things you see on sites like TMZ would just not be publishable in the UK. A public accounting of just how far up the chain of command phone hacking went, which executives knew what and when, that hasn't really happened, at least not to the extent former police detective Jackie Hames would like. She's now an activist with a group called Hacked Off, which campaigns for justice for hacking victims. I didn't like being labelled a victim, and I'm not going to let them get away with it. If you keep at it, the truth will out. This week, she'll be watching as Prince Harry, after breaking with the royal family and moving to the U.S., appears in a London courtroom, determined not to give up this fight. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, London. Some big news now. The most performed musical at high schools this past year was... The Adams Family. That's according to the annual play survey released today by the Educational Theater Association. Here's NPR's Elizabeth Blair. There's some good news and some stress among high school theater teachers. First, theater programs are rebounding from the pandemic. On average, attendance is up 13% from last year. Good morning. Mean Girls is in this year's top 10. This is from J.J. Pierce High School in Richardson, Texas. They call those three the plastics. They're shiny, big, and hard. They play their little line games around the schoolyard. More than 2,300 teachers responded to the play survey. It's a glimpse into what's popular and the educational climate. At a time of book banning and plays being challenged, 85% said they are at least somewhat concerned about censorship. 67% said those concerns are influencing their selections for next year. So these are teachers who are really in self-preservation mode. Jennifer Katona is the Educational Theater Association's executive director. Teachers know that they need to be smart about what they're putting on their stages so that they can keep the spaces for their students. Just a single complaint from a parent can have a, a show pulled. 
Danny Issa is the theater teacher at Washington Liberty High School in Arlington, Virginia. Despite his concerns about censorship, he and a lot of other schools put on Almost Maine, a play about relationships that includes two gay characters. Because there is one thing in this world that does make me feel good or make sense to me, and it's you, Randy. Issa says the first time he directed Almost Maine, he asked his predecessor about the potential backlash. And he said, you know, I, I'm not going to censor anything we put on the stage. Like, these are real issues that our students are going through, that people are going through, that our community is going through. And I know that here at the school district, the administration is going to have our back no matter what. And I felt so empowered by his message of not backing down from potential controversy because it's what our students are going through. Issa says so many people showed up for closing night, they had to open up the balcony. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, empower a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about making a modest contribution to create stories and conversations that make your world bigger. Hi, it's Robin Young. Give $10 or $15 a month an ongoing contribution, which will help sustain WBUR for everyone who listens. Please give now at WBUR.org. That's the voice of Robin Young, one of those reliable, respected voices you've heard here on WBUR for a long time. We are here for you consistently, and you wake up with us every morning. That's why we're coming to you with with our brief June fundraiser this week. We're asking 700 people who maybe haven't given before to consider joining us as monthly contributors. And this morning, when you give, members of our MERS Society have agreed to double your contribution. So it will be doubled for WBUR. And this is really important because listener support is the foundation of our independent journalism. It's the largest share of our funding. It gives us the freedom to report without fear or favor and bring that reporting back to you on Morning Edition, Radio Boston, all things considered. So please go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi, host of Morning Edition, and I'm here with Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston. Good morning, Rupa, and good morning to the Morning Edition community. It's great to be here this morning as we launch this really tight, targeted fundraiser inviting 700 people to become monthly contributors to WBUR. And we have this wonderful opportunity this morning. Some members of our Moreau Society have said, hey, we'll come with you. It's so important to do this for 700 people to say, yep, I'm in, for you to say, yep, I'm in. I'm going to become one of those monthly contributors that will put some money on the table, too. Your dollars will be doubled for this first year. The average monthly gift for a monthly contributor is $16 a month. You do that, these Murrow Society members said, yep, we'll double it. It'll be 32 for this first year. If you can give $25 a month, it'll be 50 for the first year. If you can give 5 great. It'll be 10 for the first year. The point is that it's important. These 700 members uh, who join as monthly contributors, you joining this year, it makes a huge difference for us. 
9287 or WBUR.org. It's Layla Faldil from NPR's Morning Edition. The demonization of fact-based journalism is one of democracy's biggest threats. This aversion to truth has taken hold as the number of local newsrooms has dwindled, leaving reams of disinformation to fill the void. In public radio, we have a responsibility to counteract disinformation. This station is an oasis amid all the noise and fiction. Having a reporter at the school board meeting at City Hall, that is our resistance to the undermining of a free press. We resist by being there, by providing platforms for people to see themselves reflected and to see difference. We resist by building bridges and by holding people to account. We do it thanks to you. You give us the tools we need to fight attacks on truth by donating to this station. Here's how. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And what you heard there, talking about the erosion of journalism just today, the news about, you know, workers striking for Gannett newspapers, some of them here in, in Massachusetts, as these pillars of journalism have eroded, NPR has kind of st- stood firm and become a reliable place for the people who are still searching for that reliable, unbiased, fact-based journalism that you can depend on every single morning. And lots of people do. 48 million people listen to NPR programs and podcasts and read and listen to NPR stories. When you give this morning and have your contribution doubled by Murrow Society members, that reliable support means we'll be able to plan to cover all the big events happening next year. This is about us planning ahead with a lot of your support. Be a part of that. This is how you support your community, and this is how you can be a responsible part of your community. You provide the biggest share of our funding. You can't say that enough. So please give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You know, I want to go back to Robin Young for a minute. We heard her talk about making the world bigger. At the beginning of this break, you know, think about all the times you've turned to Robin over the years. Sometimes she makes your world bigger with the big news stories like Ukraine. Sometimes she makes it smaller with something like music or a book. But she always makes it clearer. And you always know when Robin is talking to you that you can trust her um, and that she's going to deliver it with clarity and empathy and a genuine regard for what makes us human. Because of that, we listen. Because of that, we give. Because of that, some members of our Murrow Society have said, hey, come to the table. We are asking you to be one of 700 people to step up this week and say, for Robin, I'm going to become a monthly member. And we'll double that. We'll double that average $16 a month gift at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. But just this morning, so don't wait. Kick the week off with us as you do when you listen. And thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Linda Mood Bell Learning Center's Instruction for Students to Catch Up or Get Ahead live online or in-person summer programs for reading, comprehension, and math. lindamoodbell.com slash NPR. From Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. easycater.com. From Keeper, a password manager designed to keep passwords secure and protect against cyber attacks. Websites and app logins are accessible across devices and passwords are shareable. 
More at KeeperSecurity.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine is expected to be the major focus at the White House this afternoon when President Biden meets with the Prime Minister of Denmark. NPR's Tamara Keith says their talks precede next month's NATO summit. The U.S. and Denmark are working together to help train Ukrainian pilots to use F-16 fighter jets as their country defends itself against Russia. Prime Minister Meta Fredriksson of Denmark is rumored to be a candidate for the role of NATO Secretary General. But when asked if that was the purpose of her meeting with Biden, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said they have a lot to talk about. They will review our efforts uh, as NATO allies and close partners to strengthen transatlantic security and bolster economic prosperity. Uh, They will discuss our unwavering support for Ukraine in the face of Russia's brutal war of aggression. Add to the list coordination on climate change, energy security and other global issues. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. On Thursday, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is scheduled to visit the White House to discuss Ukraine. Energy analysts say Saudi Arabia's decision to reduce its output of crude oil could lead to higher gasoline prices in the U.S. The kingdom says it'll cut production by one million barrels per day beginning in July. AAA says regular averages 3.55 a gallon nationwide. This is NPR News. Authorities in Virginia say no survivors were found aboard a small business jet that crashed in the Blue Ridge Mountains yesterday, south of Stanton. It's unclear how many people were aboard. The Cessna citation was on a flight from Tennessee to New York when, for unknown reasons, it turned around over Long Island and flew directly toward restricted airspace in Washington, D.C. The pilot was unresponsive, prompting the scrambling of fighter jets at supersonic speeds. A a sonic boom could be heard in and around the nation's capital. Chuck Todd says he's stepping down as host of NBC's Meet the Press. Here's NPR's Amy Held. Kristen Welker, an NBC News White House correspondent, will take over in September as the next host of Meet the Press. Current host Chuck Todd made the announcement during Sunday's show. I'd rather leave a little bit too soon than stay a tad bit too long. Critics, though, say Todd has already overstayed, accusing him of softball questioning. The show, on air since 1947, is considered a top spot for Washington newsmakers. But its popularity has declined since then-host Tim Russert died suddenly after a heart attack in 2008. Todd is 51 and has hosted for nearly a decade. I've watched too many friends and family let work consume them before it was too late. I promised my family I wouldn't do that. Welker says she's grateful to take the baton and build the show's legacy. Amy Held, NPR News. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts attorneys are investigating the abrupt arrival of migrants in Sacramento, California. A group from South America arrived there last week, apparently flown there from Florida. The Boston-based group Lawyers for Civil Rights say the incident is similar to the one that occurred on Martha's Vineyard last fall. The group is leading a class-action lawsuit against Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. They allege DeSantis deceived migrants into flying to the vineyard. The Winter Hill Community Innovation School in Somerville will remain closed for the rest of the school year. Winter Hill canceled classes last week after a piece of concrete fell onto a stairwell. City officials say they're working to address the building's safety issues. Students at the school will finish classes at various locations nearby.
Nearly half of Massachusetts lawmakers in Washington have a staff that's comprised of more white people than the average congressional staff. A report obtained by the Boston Globe shows Congressman Bill Keating and Jake Auchincloss have the least diverse staffs overall. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey had the most diverse staffs. The report found every member of the state's all-Democratic delegation had a more more diverse staff than House Republicans. It's 835. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, offering master's in education programs and credentials for teachers with a state-aligned curriculum. Online.merrimack.edu. In sports, the Red Sox lost to the Tampa Bay Rays 6-2 yesterday at Fenway Park. The teams will wrap up their four-game series this afternoon. Boston is now 11 games behind first-place Tampa Bay in the AL East. Showers this morning and cloudy this afternoon will have high temperatures in the low 60s. Tonight it falls to the low 50s. Tomorrow a mix of sun and clouds with showers and thunderstorms possible beginning around mid-afternoon. It's 52 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from BritBox with the latest season of Father Brown Season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This is NPR. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. There's a serious housing shortage across New England. In Massachusetts, housing advocates estimate we need to build 100,000 more homes per year to keep up with demand and tame sky-high prices. So how do we build more homes, and how do we build them quickly? WBUR's Yasmin Ammer explains that some argue part of the answer is something called housing factories. A handful of carpenters hammer away as they install off-white siding on a brand-new apartment complex in Swansea, New Hampshire. The builders are close to finishing up 84 affordable units. So the installation process is pretty neat. We have a significantly good-sized crane that comes that will set these into place like Legos. Jack Franks leads Avenue Development Group, which is building this complex. And he's doing it differently from traditional construction. Instead of raw materials assembled on site, these Legos were mostly made in a factory in Philly. Imagine each apartment as a big rectangular box with frames, walls, and bathrooms pre-built and delivered on a tractor trailer. And you go from no building to a building in a matter of days. It's, it's pretty impressive. Inside the building, Franks points to some of the standard features. The windows, cabinets, bedroom closets. When you take a look, I mean, you tell me, how do they look? I mean, to me, they look just, you know, like uh, any closet I've ever seen before, to be honest. Yeah, they're nice. So they're laid out nicely. The parts for this building come from Volumetric Building Companies, or VBC. Their design office is in Somerville. Sarah Ann Logan is the VP of design, and she's seen more interest in this type of construction in the past year. It's a game changer, right? So there's a whole bunch of things that are going on in the world right now that are making it 
easier and make me think this is the time. Better technology is one reason to give off-site construction a try, but she also thinks a lot of interest stems from problems in traditional construction that only got worse after COVID. And I think part of that is because it is getting more expensive to build traditionally. We don't have the workforce to build traditionally anymore. According to the trade group Associated Builders and Contractors, the U.S. is short of more than half a million construction workers. Still, off-site construction isn't popular in Massachusetts. Logan says developers here tend to be more risk-averse. We have the universities, we have the people innovating, but we're not really adopting it at the same rate as um, other states. And that honestly makes me a little bit sad because <laughs> I live here and I'm committed to being in New England. Manufactured construction isn't a new idea per se. It's popular in Japan and many European countries. It's also gaining traction in states like Pennsylvania and California. Ivan Rupnik teaches architecture at Northeastern University. He says the U.S. used to incorporate more manufacturing in construction. So in the 50s and 60s, we actually built housing in the U.S., both on-site and in factories, using more advanced techniques than we and widely that are widely used today. Rupnik says a lot of construction in the U.S. today is more expensive and slower than it used to be. It's also wasteful. We throw away about 50 percent of the materials that we bring to the construction site. That's alone an economics problem. But manufactured housing does have challenges. It's expensive to build and maintain massive factories. The cost of materials is about the same as traditional construction. And in the past, critics have pointed to factory-made housing as subpar. Jack Franks, the developer in New Hampshire, pushes back against that notion. Anyone that has concerns about the quality of housing should visit a project like this to see for themselves that the quality of work here and the quality of workmanship is uh, at or better in some cases than traditional stick-built. Here's the big thing, though. Say these factories that build quality housing pop up all over New England. That still doesn't change zoning rules that restrict buildings from going up in the first place. It also doesn't make permitting faster. Jack Franks knows this, but he's hoping that as soon as projects are approved, buildings can go up in half the time. Small portion of this industry will change dramatically over the next 10 years. This is this is where this industry is headed. You're betting on that. Oh, I'm all in. Yeah, I'm, if I'm sitting at the poker table, I'm all in. Jax is already sitting at this metaphorical poker table. In fact, he's planning to build his own factory in New Hampshire to focus on manufacturing energy-efficient buildings. It's fair to say, at tens of millions of dollars, that's a pretty sizable bet. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. From news headlines to deeper dives into issues of real consequence, from morning edition to all things considered, from stories online at WBUR.org, to conversations on stage at City Space, everything you get from WBUR depends on a solid foundation of listener support. Help us get to our June fundraiser goal to keep our journalism strong. Here's how to help. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Daryl C. Murphy there, host of our podcast, The Common. The episode out this morning from The Common is about the MCAS test and 
maybe the problems it might have for English English language learners. Before that, you heard part of our ongoing reporting on the housing crisis facing Massachusetts. And Yasmin Amr there told us about solutions. We don't just focus on what's wrong. We look for ways we can all work toward making things better. And that's what a community does, your community. That's what you do when you support WBUR. You support your informed community. So today we're asking you to give to WBUR because listener support carries WBUR like never before. And when you give monthly, you give us basically stability. We know what we have to work with so we can plan for the reporting that you depend on. And you get that. You budget. You have finances. You have a paycheck. You need to know when that paycheck will be coming. And that's what you do for us when you give monthly. So please go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy, and I am here this morning with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. Hey there, Rupa. Probably the best explanation I've ever heard of why giving monthly is so helpful to WBUR. And that's what we're here for this week. This is a short, targeted fundraiser. We have one goal, which is to invite 700 people to become monthly givers. And this morning, some members of our Moral Society have said, hey, let's do this together. It's so important. We'll do it together. You come to the table. You become one of those 700 monthly givers, and we'll double your money for the first year. The average monthly gift is $16 a month. You do that, we'll make it 32 for the first year. If you can do more, if you can do 25 or $30 a month, we'll make it 50 or 60. If you can do five, great, we'll make it 10. Just come to the table. Be one of those 700 and do it this morning at 1-800-909-9287 to get that dollar-for-dollar match this first year or go to WBUR.org. Hey there, it's Tamara Keith from NPR. I thrive on deadlines. I don't think I'd get anything done without them. Just ask my editor. If you're the same way, I'm here to help you out with a little nudge to get something important done. I'm going to give you a deadline for donating to this station. You can knock it out in five minutes, I swear. Start a timer. Your deadline is now. Here's how to give. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Rural Society members have agreed to match dollar for dollar whatever you give this morning. But that's only available this morning. When it goes away, your chance to double your impact for WBUR goes away. So give now and start your morning and your week off right. You can go to work or drive the kids to school or to programming or to soccer or whatever, knowing that you have done something good for your community. We are mission-driven, not-for-profit journalism that is supported with voluntarily voluntary monthly contributions from our listeners. That's you. You're listening. We need your support. That's why we're asking for it right now. And when you give now, Moreau Society members will double whatever you give because they, like Tiziana said, they want to bring you to the table. We need you to be an active part of our community and be responsible for bringing this news to your community. So go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You know, you already mentioned uh, Yasmin Ammer this morning, Rupa, um, you know, Daryl Murphy with The Common. It's Max Larkin who's uh, with Daryl talking mm-hmm. about the MCAS. Um, we heard Martha 
Martha Biebinger earlier this morning talking about the long-term impact of reporting on the opioid crisis. You've heard Robin Young this morning, Deepa Fernandez. It goes on and on. These are all voices that WBUR brings you, sometimes through NPR, but always through this station, whether it's online, it's in person, it's digital. We work really, really hard to be the place you trust for the big stories and the little stories, the ones that hold you in your seat or bring you a little bit of joy, the ones you don't want to hear, but you know you have to, and the ones that you don't have to hear, but you know you want to. All of that comes from a little bit of support from you. This week, we're asking you to step up, accept our invitation, be one of 700 to become a monthly giver. And our Murrow Society members are going to double that money. They say, hey, come to the table. We're here with you. one 800 909 9287 or wbur.org. Your money is doubled this morning. Do it now and thanks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News and World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Officials in Atlanta, Georgia, are closing some city hall offices and taking other precautions today ahead of a crucial funding vote for a controversial police training center. This comes days after three activists involved in the fight against a proposed project dubbed Cop City were arrested. Peter Biella with Georgia Public Broadcasting is with us now to tell us more. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. So let me start with this training center. I said that it's controversial. Why is that? Well, this public safety training center, it's a $90 million facility for first responders, including police and fire, in a forested area in southeast Atlanta. And it is big. It's 85 acres, and it's not just for Atlanta. The city plans to rent it out to first responders from across the country. It was approved by the city council two years ago, and since then it's faced protests. At one of those, a protester was killed by state troopers, and that's still under investigation. So you have environmentalists who are worried about the forest, and then there are those who don't want this anywhere. They say the police are violent and this will make them even more militarized. Part of this facility includes a mock city to train in urban environments, and that inspires the name protesters have given the project Cop City. I understand that police used SWAT officers last week to arrest some protest organizers. Would you tell us more about that whole incident and tell us more about the the folks who were arrested? Sure. Uh, Atlanta police and the GBI arrested three people who were running a bail fund called the Atlanta Solidarity Fund. Uh, They say these organizers engaged in charity fraud and money laundering. Their defenders say they they did these things, the things most nonprofit organizers do, just reimburse people for overhead, in this case, COVID tests, yard signs and gas, things like that. And now they got bail on Friday and the judge said about the charges that there wasn't a lot of meat on the bone. After the arrest, though, uh, Republican Governor Brian Kemp said these fundraisers are part of a criminal operation. But, but why such a heavy police presence for an alleged charity fraud case? Uh, that's a good question. I asked the GBI and the Atlanta police, and they wouldn't tell me. Uh, but, you know, this fund has been used to pay for the defense of people arrested after a protest in March that turned violent. A group of protesters threw Molotov cocktails and set fire to construction equipment. They were charged with domestic terrorism, a rare charge under Georgia state law, and this bail fund has been helping to fight those charges. So 
The optics of arresting the bail fund organizers matter here. Some say it's an attempt to scare protesters. Kamal Franklin is an activist with the group Community Movement Builders who often rallies with the protesters. The fact that they're trying to take away a bail fund, which has supported protesters and organizers, is directly linked to their attempt to stifle dissent, to chill dissent, and to take away people's First Amendment rights to protest and to feel safe enough to protest. So in the minute we have left, Peter, tell us what the city council is voting on today. So uh, councilors are voting on whether to approve uh, $31 million from the city of Atlanta for this facility. Another $60 million is supposed to come from the Atlanta Police Foundation, uh, an independent nonprofit that supports policing in Atlanta, though some of that will be repaid. Uh, the arrests in the court hearing Friday may have had an effect on some of the council members. Mayor Andre Dickens is fully behind the training center. He says Atlanta police need it. Uh, but city council member Liliana Bakhtiari says she's going to vote against it. She says the city's approval process has lacked transparency. We could have done this much differently. And in the way that it's been conducted, without sensitivity, without openness, has led there to be a very deep divide in our city. And that divide is likely to be on display at this meeting today. Protesters and police are expected to show up in large numbers. That's Peter Biello with Georgia Public Broadcasting. Peter, thank you. Thank you. A few years ago, I drove 500 miles across the flat land of Texas, mostly flat. We came over a ridge, and what spread out in front of us was the Permian Basin, a vast region once covered by a sea. It's more recently been a center of the Texas oil industry, meaning it is a traditional scene of boom and bust as prices go up and down. Now companies are trying for discipline and a steadier approach. NPR's Camila Dominoski drills down on this story. The Permian Basin went bust a few years ago, and then boom times came back. But oddly quiet boom times. Not totally quiet. Unit drilling boss rig number 404 is looming over the scrubby flatlands of West Texas like a rocket launch pad, minus the rocket. Long sections of pipe are added to the drill, pushing the bit deeper and deeper. It's currently about 1,800 feet underground. There are a lot more steps before this well will be producing any oil, but the smell of it is already potent. We're drilling with oil-based mud, which is a little stinkier. It's got diesel in it. I was going to ask if the smell was from the generators or if it was coming out of the water. No, it's coming out of the mud. Coming out of the mud. The reason is water would react with the formations and come in on us. It's really the only way we can effectively drill this rock. Be sure you put a hand on the rail. Yep. Steve Pruitt is the CEO of Elevation Resources. This drilling rig, it's part of a mini boom for his company. The rig runs 24-7 for weeks, pulling up rocks from deep underground, mixed in with that oily mud. Drilling rigs like this are always running in the Permian, putting new wells into the ground, a lot of them during booms, just a few of them during busts. But for the last year, as oil prices skyrocketed and then settled, the number of rigs has actually held pretty much steady right around the middle of that range. Holding steady might sound like, okay, that's not a big deal, but these are U.S. shale producers. Holding steady just isn't what they do. Angie Gilday is the head of U.S. energy at the accounting firm KPMG. She says before the pandemic... When there was an increase in prices, the U.S. shale players would rush in and uh, increase production to try to capture that price increase. Prices go up, 
more rigs, which meant more money and more oil and eventually too much oil driving a bust. Since COVID, what we're seeing is investors are actually demanding more discipline. Discipline for an oil producer means sending money back to investors instead of firing up every drilling rig you can. Overall, oil production in the Permian is still growing, but gradually, not like it used to. That's good for oil investors who get more cash. It's been good for oil companies. It's not so great for consumers. Keeping supply lower than it could be can be a recipe for higher prices. On the other hand, this steady growth approach has been pretty good for oil workers, like Jason Rodriguez. We're pretty busy right now, actually. He works running explosives into new oil wells. In his spare time, he fixes up a 76 Chevy pickup truck with his 12-year-old son, Aaron. At a car show in Midland in West Texas, I asked what he thought about the future. Eventually, I think the oil field will start dying down and go all electric and have hovering cars. But not for a while. And Rodriguez, who works 16-hour shifts for 14 days at a time, he plans to retire in 15 years. By then, then they can do whatever they want. Whether or not they think oil demand will go down eventually, pretty much everyone in the oil patch agrees there's a lot of money to be made right now. Camila Domanowski, NPR News. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. I'm Scott Simon. Your monthly contribution to WBUR says that you value journalism that keeps you informed. You value reporting that's rooted in your community. You value independent journalism as the foundation of our democracy. More than what your contribution says about you is what it can do. Your monthly contribution to WBUR makes the station's independent journalism possible. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thanks so much for listening to Morning Edition this morning on WBUR. Coming up, you'll hear the BBC NewsHour, one of the best sources of international news available to anyone. And you get it just by listening to 90.9 or the WBUR app or by saying play WBUR to your smart speaker. Sorry if I just did it there. And you're listening. As you're listening, think about how much you value what you're he- what you're hearing. And this morning, we're asking for your support to keep that service coming to you. When you give and when you give monthly, you help us know what funding we have to work with. And then we can plan our reporting. Reporting, we bring back to you every morning on important subjects that touch your life and affect your community. When you give to WBUR monthly, you become a reliable source of support that we can depend on. Do that for you, your family, your community, and help keep bringing them the responsible, fair journalism they rely on. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. Good morning, Rupa. So great to start the week with you, with the Morning Edition community, as we launch a very targeted strategic fundraiser here, seeking to 
invite 700 people to become monthly givers of WBUR uh, this week. We have some members of our Moreau Society who have said, hey, come on, let's do this together. You come to the table, we'll come to the table. We are going to match that gift this morning. You become one of those 700. Do it this morning and we will put a dollar for dollar match for the first year. The average monthly gift of a monthly giver is $16 a month. We'll make it 32. If you can do more, if you can do 25 or 30 a month, we'll make it 50 or 60. If you can do less, if you can do 10 a month, we'll make it 20. The key is to do it now. Accept this invitation. Come to the table. Become a monthly giver. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. I was in the kitchen washing dishes, watching testimony from a state house hearing that happened earlier in the day. The topic they were talking about was wheelchairs, and the testimony was just so striking. I stopped doing the dishes, and I began taking notes. I felt very vulnerable, extremely vulnerable. Researchers estimate that more than half of wheelchairs break down in any typical six-month period, and it regularly takes months to get a chair fixed. And the guy opens the package in front of me, and it's the wrong part. And it always is the wrong part. After the story aired, I heard from dozens of listeners, and many weren't wheelchair users themselves. They just wanted to be part of a solution. I am Gabriella Emanuel, a health and science reporter here at WBUR. We want to tell you more stories like this one. If you can, please consider making a monthly gift at WBUR.org. And when you give a monthly gift right now, whatever you give will be doubled dollar for dollar for a year. So think about that. Maybe that's two stories from Gabriela Emanuel instead of just one. I mean, that whatever you can think of, double it. If you have $2 in your wallet right now, it'll be 4 I mean, it, it's simple math, but really it makes such a big difference to us. This is what we rely on when we go out and we do reporting and we think about the stories that we're doing. We think about you and what you want to know. Now, today, this morning, we're asking for you to think about us and to support what we bring you every morning, the really important work that we want to keep bringing to you. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Be one of the 700 who are going to step up this week and say, yep, I'm going to become a monthly member of WBUR.org. Do it this morning to help us start the week and to take advantage of this wonderful matching opportunity. 800-909-9287, WBUR.org. And thanks. WBUR supporters include BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.